0: As Backyard Stories is put on hold for the time being, and while we're all self-isolating, I thought it would be nice for some familiar voices to share some stories centered around the theme nostalgia. This is Backyard Stories, the Inside Edition. At the age of 16, I found out I had written a Pink Floyd song. It was called Bike, and they had sung all my lyrics by a single line. I have a llama and he lives with a farmer. Roger Waters must have decided that the song worked better without it. He kept, I know a mouse and he hasn't got a house. I don't know why, I call him Gerald. Instead, for whatever reason. My father Michael's first concert was Jimi Hendrix and the Pink Floyd. Mine was the Black Eyed Peas. This is precisely why I've always needed him. I have no recollection of listening to that song. There is no indistinguishable moment I can carefully pick out of a box and place on the table where Michael sat us down and said, listen to this. It was just what we did. All day, every day. There existed a time of such musical overkill that apparently it has unconsciously infiltrated almost all I can pinpoint as my early creativity. Michael defines his childhood by three things. The Beatles, Cassius Clay, now known as Muhammad Ali, and the Moonshots. He loved the Beatles because his mother did. I love the Beatles because he does. I even performed Eleanor Rigby at a singing concert, age 13. I pretended I chose the song myself without thinking too much about it. Michael used to sing Eleanor Rigby when I was a child, and the line all the lonely people would sometimes bring me to tears. I always held them back. I performed it for him. When I was seven, I purchased a black and white video cassette containing four of Diana Ross's most famous video clips and a green frog-shaped shower cap. Michael said it was the best Christmas present he'd ever received. I don't think I've ever known my father better. I remember my mother laughing for days. There was never anything funny about it for Michael and me. It was a few months later when one of the cool kids took me to a real Pink Floyd gig, their first with David Gilmour on guitar, he says. It was a lightning bolt revelation for me. Blew my mind. I must have spent the next few years just following them around England. I must have gone to 20 of their gigs. They played Pink Floyd at my grandmother Sheila's funeral, and all I can remember is crying because my underwear was too wet to wear. It wasn't actually wet, I've since been told. Just cold. Michael and his sister chose Shine On You Crazy Diamond, simply because she was a crazy diamond, he said. Remember when you were young, you shone like the sun. Shine on, you crazy diamond. I could talk to her about anything, he says. Come on, you target for faraway laughter. Come on, you stranger, you legend, you martyr and shine. I was probably a bit of a disappointment when I was really young at school. But I remember when I qualified as a lawyer. She was so excited, so pleased. Come on, you raver, you seer of visions. Come on, you painter, you piper, you prisoner and shine. In the background, I knew categorically that whatever happened, she was there. Whatever happened, she would support me. I think that just about defined our relationship. This song comes from the 1975 album, Wish You Were Here. The Floyd wrote this song to Sid Barrett, an original founder of the band, the godfather of psychedelia he has since been referred to. He was asked to leave the Floyd because of his ongoing struggle with drug addiction, He refused to address the variety of issues surrounding his destructive mental health. Apparently once in 1975, when the Floyd were recording at Abbey Road Studios, Sid just appeared. His head and eyebrows had been shaved and he was brushing his teeth whilst jumping up and down over and over. This was the first contact he'd had with the band for seven years. Sheila struggled with depression all of her life. Maybe that's why she listened to so much music. Maybe that's why she moved nursing homes three times when she became ill. Once because my father said it smelt. Once because she couldn't sleep. There were canaries in a cage outside her bedroom. Once because I don't know why. Maybe that's why she was a crazy diamond rather than a karma gemstone. Michael now reclines on the couch and ruffles his brown yet fast graying hair as he begins to speak like a petulant child who has never had to share his toys. We soon lost interest, he says. They became so popular that they were playing in stadiums and football grounds. It wasn't for us anymore. It was incredibly frustrating growing up in his household because my sister and I were expected to know all of the things. The names of albums and the years they were produced and the original guitarist of a rock band from West Coast USA whose most famous single was only ever distributed on cassette. Once I made Michael a playlist, I asked him to listen to it and tell me what he thought. He played it where he listened to all of his music, through the speakers in the living room while sunk into the brown leather chair. I was so nervous. I ran upstairs so I didn't have to watch him, but kept poking my head over the banister, trying to distinguish exactly what he meant by closing his eyes for four seconds or crossing his legs or coughing twice in a row. After the first three and a half songs, he pressed stop and asked, Do you mind if I continue this later? I've got a bit of a headache. Michael didn't have time for any of my music. He had quite enough of his own just like Sheila, Michael eventually became unwell. As his body began to slowly turn on itself, there was such a clear reflection in his music taste it could have almost been funny. He became misunderstood and brooding, spending hours in our front lounge room disappearing into the gap between his mahogany speakers and cream couch, listening only to the words of R.E.M. or The Doors. I would sit in my bedroom and just watch as the edges of each book placed so carefully in its place slowly quivered along with the vibrations. I would either run downstairs and sit with him in silence, or cry alone until the album was over. When I became unwell like Michael, we would spend our evenings together watching old episodes of Sea Change on our now-deceased television box. I often listened to a song by Yersayer over and over again to help me through woodwork class when I kept spilling varnish on my school skirt. The chorus told me, "'You must stick up for yourself, son, never mind what anybody else done.' And although I wasn't anyone's son, I felt empowered by the lyrics all the same. I tried to play the song to Michael on the way home from school one afternoon, but he didn't understand or like it, so he turned it off and put on Neil Young. I can't comprehend having seen Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett on guitar, or being taught the chords to a saucer full of secrets while sharing a beer with Roger Waters and David Gilmour, or being a teenager and on the guest list of Elvis Costello as a friend, when I struggled to have many. We coasted along on a wave. It was a special wave we were on, is what Michael says except he never really mentioned any female artists, apart from Diana Ross, of course. This wave didn't seem to have the room to carry women, but instead left them struggling in the deep end amidst the sharks. He liked Stevie Nicks, maybe because she always looked so beautiful in her flared trousers, or maybe I'm being unfair and that's just what I think. I remember him once talking about how powerful Mariah Carey's voice was, but we were never allowed to listen to her in the car. How to recognize sexism is not something Michael has ever taught me. I often feel ashamed when I think about the albums I cherish, because it was Neil Young who brought us both to tears. I had to find out about Patti Smith and Joni Mitchell all by myself. To them, I cried alone. Is music the most important thing in your life? I ask him, feeling emotional even before an answer. Music is something that enhances my life, rather than being an integral part of it. I've been through so many periods of disengagement where I think, I've been there, I've done that. I still love music and I know that I should make the effort to engage with its development, but that love is so very time-specific. That era, 1966 to 1978, there's been nothing really for me since then, has there? I've always wanted to tell him to stop being so closed-minded, to listen to the radio instead of merely repeating the same eight CDs in his car stereo that haven't been changed for 10 years. I've wanted him to know that it was rude when he shouted, what is this garbage? When I was 13 and showed him a song, I would specifically asked a girl from school to bluetooth to my Nokia phone and made my ringtone. At the same singing concert where I performed Eleanor Rigby, I also sung Don't Fight the Moonlight by Leanne Rhymes. It came from the Coyote Ugly soundtrack, the part in the movie where two blonde girls dance on the bar wearing beaded halterneck tops. I like to think Michael enjoyed both. It is almost painful being so tightly bound to someone who is alive in every word I've ever said out loud every time I've embarrassed myself by being too intense or too passive or too much. Every time I've made a new meal or said something that made a group of people laugh. Because Michael is so much a part of me that my lung could be his lung and the same dent on our same ear in the same place could have been pressed by the same machine that produces identical hair clips or silicon biscuit molds. I'm taking your mother to see Roger Waters later this year. It's the first act I've really wanted to see since the 80s. My mother is looking down from the kitchen bench and grinning like he's announcing their first date. I just wish I had been invited. He tells me that music has always been enough. We didn't need anything else back then. But this must be where we differ, because I need a lot more, especially from him.